From the heart of the Forest City, focusing on the biggest stories in London, this is the Craig Needles Podcast. Now here's your host, Craig Needles. It's the Craig Needles Podcast, and it is the Friday Roundtable. And of course, this episode of the Craig Needles Podcast is brought to you by our friends at Clearview Auto Glass, and you can find us on your favorite podcast app and at londonnewstoday.ca or classicrock981.com. And joining us in the studio today, former London City Councilor John Fife Miller, also joined by former Thames Center Deputy Mayor Kelly Elliott and Kelly Zigner of the Elgin Middlesex United Way, or Middlesex Elgin, whichever. Uh, Elgin Middlesex. There we go. See, I got it right the there first time. Go. Why did I question myself? <laughs> uh, the other thing, and just I, I want to peel back the, the decision-making process for me, for the audience for a second, and, and be an honest guy. Uh, when did I realize that I had uh, asked two people with the same first name to be on this roundtable. <laughs> Yesterday, when I sent out the email to everyone who's on this episode of the roundtable, as I was typing in the two bar, I'm like, oh, wait a second. Okay, anyway. So that's going to be a host problem, but we'll figure that out as we go. Uh, let's talk about news this week. And there's a lot of different things that I want to discuss. And I want to begin with the, the 50 King Project. 800 units, downtown London, sounds great. Not everyone's necessarily thrilled about this. And Kelly Elliott, I wanted to ask you about this first because you come at this from a somewhat unique perspective because, of course, uh, the county, Middlesex County, sold this land to York Developments a few years ago, and now they're going to build two massive towers on it. In fact, the biggest towers that London has seen. Uh, your thoughts uh, on uh, what uh, councils decided to green light here and whether you thought that was uh, the right way to handle that land, which at one point you were the steward of or one of the stewards of. Yeah, I think it's super exciting. I th- this is exactly what uh, Ali came to the table when he came to Middlesex County uh, with the proposal on what he wanted to do if he was the successful uh, proponent of, of winning the sale of it. And um, yeah, it's exactly what was what he presented and ex- exactly the vision that Middlesex County had for, for that. Um, obviously, the county owning you know, prime land in the middle of the city of London is a little, uh, a little bizarre, but, you know. It was a strange, unusual <laughs> circumstance, to say the least, yes. But we, you know, we had a vision for what we wanted to see on that, and we're excited to see it all play out. And when you obviously when you sold the land to York Developments, you would have had some sort of idea that, hey, they're going to want to build a somewhat significant housing project here like that. That would have been part of the conversation. Absolutely. So the bid. um, So when um, when they put their bids together, so York Developments and the city of the London, sorry, city of London were the two uh, that came. It was obviously the, the sale price, but also they had to tell us what they wanted to do, the vision, the plan for the property. Um, and that played a big impact into our role because obviously, um, you know, we care a lot about that property and we want to see the best outcome for it. Well, the the outcome is going to be 800 units. John, uh, you represented obviously that area when you were on council. Uh, your thoughts on where where we decided to get with that? I think it's great great use of the property. And uh, first, I'm going to thank Kelly for selling it because I think <laughs> I think it's a, I think it's a fabulous use of the property. Um, I think this development in the downtown core is is game changing mm-hmm. because. I think as we look at the downtown, and I've always said we have to re we have to reimagine our downtown as a neighborhood. And part of imagining it as a neighborhood is having people living there, calling it home at the end of the day. When we have that, and when we get that volume of people, that will assist in bringing back some of our commercial space because I think people that want to live downtown also want to work in the downtown core. Mm-hmm. I think th- I think that's a core piece that we need. But I also think that this building sends a message 
that London is the major city that it is at the end of the day. We're, we're close to 500,000 people here. This is going to be the future of London in southwestern Ontario. We need to take that step and recognize that we are the major city, the major player here, and act like it. And I think this is what that's done. Kelly, what do you think about this? It's, it's a big building. Yeah, it's like John said, it's super exciting for the core. I live and work in the core myself. And so having this development is great, brings new people, you know, excited by the design of it as well, that it ha- will have, you know, retail and commercial space on the first two floors. So you're not just walking by this giant building that you have no access to. So right. the general public will be able to, um, you know, explore those spaces as well. Um, and it looks like what they're doing and planning for the waterfronts also. So quite exciting. Yeah, I, I, I'm i really happy about it for a couple of reasons. One, we need the housing. We need it in a big way. Two, um, exactly what you just said, which is there could be some pretty revolutionary commercial opportunities here. And look, I'm not going to say, hey, there might be a grocery store there because <laughs> I don't know. However, if you look at the specs and you look at the way things are designed, there'd be enough space for a grocery store if one wanted to be there. And if I owned a grocery store, I would like the idea of having 800 potential customers living directly above where my grocery store is. That would sound pretty good to me. So I hope that's something that happens. I've actually asked uh, Ali Sufan of York Developments to come on this podcast and talk about, not necessarily the grocery store thing with me, but just the the (laughs) development in general. We're working it out. We're hoping it happens. Ali, if you're listening to this, come do it. It's going to be a good time. It's going to be a good time. Uh, I do want to ask about the affordable housing piece of this uh, because uh, there isn't necessarily one where there are affordable units in this building, which some people were not thrilled about. However, there was $600,000 that's going to go to Indwell. That's a lot of money for an organization like Indwell. Kelly, do you, does that make sense to you as far as uh, replacing of the affordable housing piece with this goes, or do you wish they had done it a different way? Yeah, I mean, I think um, the city's hands is a little bit tied on this now yes. with with uh, the legislation that came down through the provincial government. So, um, of course, you know, we'd always like affordable units in perpetuity. But, I mean, part of the challenge is these are going to be luxury apartment buildings in, like, the most prime real estate location in the city. Mm-hmm. So even affordable is not going to 80% be. 80% of market rate there is oh, going to be what? You know, if, if it's $2,000 so, a month to rent there, 80% market rate, 1600 bucks a month. Yeah. Still I did, a lot of money. I did some like back of the napkin math. And even at the 1700 which is the, the current going rate for a one bedroom, right. um, somebody on minimum wage is spending more than 50% of their wages on, on their shelter needs. So, um, you know, Indwell, is a fantastic partner in our community doing really mm-hmm. great work. What I like about the donation model is it's going to get to work right away. Yes. yes. Not in, you know, five years when a building's completed. So we are in a crisis right now. That money is going to be hard at work very soon. And, and, and that's something I'll note too, is that the indwell money, they, that 600K that goes into their coffers now, as opposed to, let's say the building's done five years from now, and I'm, I'm just spitballing on timelines. And then you have the 25 years of affordable market rate. So you get the 80% units in 2000 and, you know, 2053, great. Or you can have the 600K now. 600K now, do you think, John? Love it. Yeah. I, th- I think this is a great model, and I think it's a model that we should continue to look at using for buildings. Because let's be perfectly honest, there have been buildings where we've committed units to it that have never been built and will never be built. Well, what right. good is that at the end of the day? Right. But getting no one that, lives there. No. Yeah. Getting that money right now into the hands of somebody that I think is a good partner 
is great because even if that building doesn't go forward, and Craig, you're right, let's be honest, in the right economy, that building's five years away. That's challenging right now in the economy that we've got. Mm -hmm. That building could be 10 years away. Is housing our number one issue a decade from now? I don't know. Yeah. And we probably, if we look, look back a decade, probably didn't think it was our problem right. today. So I think getting that money now and doing what we need to do with it is key. And I love that model, and I hope they use it for some other cities. I think Kelly brought up a good point, too, in the fact that you know when, London, when the city or any municipality comes to the table to negotiate with developers, they don't have a lot of negotiating power right. to say, you know, the developer is coming with housing that they need. Um, and especially in this, uh, this part, they're coming with commercial, with housing, with waterfront development. They're coming with everything the city the wa- wants and needs. And the city doesn't have a lot to come back and offer. Uh, and so I think, you know, this $600,000 donation is more, is $600,000 more than Ali and York Development had to yeah, do. They could have said it's zero and then the, the City of London could have tried their luck at uh, Ontario Land Tribunal and they would have lost. Exactly. Yeah. And so I think this is the best case scenario that came out of it. And to, and, and John raised the point too, Ali and York Developments are a great partner. It's not like this is the only donation Ali has given back to this, to the City of London. And so, to partner up with him and for him to come to the table on this really shows, um, you know, again, he was a great buyer. <laughs> Follow up on that, Kelly, the, the, the bonusing aspect of it. Uh, I think that you'll find just about any municipal councillor around this province would say, man, I really wish we could still do bonusing and have that be part of our negotiation tool. That, that could have hurt the city here because you look at, let's say it's zoned for 35 stories there and we're going to 42 for one or going to 52 for the other. That's an extra... 17 stories or whatever it is off the top of my head that you could have really done some things with bonusing there Mm -hmm. that that tool is just out of the toolbox for counselors absolutely so i guess what i'm asking you is (laughs) did the ford government kind of sewer them a little bit here on stuff like that like well, I think this isn't the only way the Ford government has sewered the city of London, but but yes, absolutely. I think you know, and that's the th- and again, it comes back to the not just the city of London. Every municipality coming to the table does not have negotiating power, and so for and it's tough for the public to say, and it's tough to be an elected official. And I think John, you can agree for the for the general public who doesn't you know, necessarily know all of the workings behind the scenes to come and say, this city should have gotten more. The city should have done this. Like, you know, you go to the negotiating table, you go to the developer, you try and get the best for your community that you can do. But at the end of the day, there's not much you can do. And if you can come out with a small win, and and I don't want to call $600,000 a small win, but when you can come out with something like that, that's huge. Yeah, I agree 100%. And I think that the when you look at the bonusing, the bonusing to me was the negotiation ability, yeah. right? You had that ability to negotiate. And I know some people think that's a bad word when you say, oh, look, I'm an elected official and I'm going to go in and I'm going to sit down and I'm going to negotiate with a developer to get, as you said, and, and you hit it bang on, the best thing for the community that we can get at the end of the day. That's what we're there for. We're there to talk to them and say what works for us and what's best for our community. And you know what? Yeah. I, I think that's a tool that uh, that a lot of municipalities lost out on. Uh, let's talk about the housing aspect of this. And obviously, we need a whole lot of housing. We need it soon. This building, probably five years away, as John said, 
maybe more than five years away. So Kelly Zickner, in your opinion, what does council need to do to get housing that is impactful for us now? Because we badly need it, as you obviously see in your work. Yeah, I mean, we're we're very much focused uh, sort of at the the end of the spectrum that's dealing with, um, you know, shelters, mm-hmm. supported housing. Um, and I think, you know, they are moving uh, to pretty quickly on stuff on like hubs, the yeah. hubs. Um, I think the next step will be, um, you know, that sort of transitionary piece where you're moving people from hubs into a more long-term model, right? And that that is missing right now, right? So, um, you know, filling in that middle between, um, you know, shelters, hubs, and then market rent, there's a big gap right there in the middle. So I think that's where a lot of the focus has to be. And it was just meeting with Indwell this week, and, and they have some, some thoughts and some plans around some projects there. So I think there's lots of conversations happening and, and certainly lots of momentum. So that's exciting. Yeah, I, uh, I, I'm excited by that, too. And I, I want to see, obviously, as much housing as we can get as soon as we can get it. That is what I hope to see. Uh, we were just talking about the downtown. And I want to talk about uh, one other downtown-related story, and that is Home County Folk Festival. And it looks like we're not going to be doing that this year, and we may not be doing that anymore. Events, and we were just talking about this off the air for uh, events that you know the United Way is planning. Events have changed, obviously, in the last few years. It's, it's a different situation now when you're planning something like this. Now, that's an outdoor event in a park, but nonetheless, no home county. Uh, John, what was your reaction when you heard that we're not going to be doing that anymore? Well, you know, first first, I'm going to say I, I know a lot of the people that put together home county. Right. Um, I, I want to say thank you for all the time and energy these people have put in over the years because this is mostly a volunteer organization and they have done an exceptional job of bringing that to our downtown and have drawn a lot of people into our downtown over that time period. I also have to commend them for making what probably was an extremely difficult decision to not do yeah. it, to move forward. And they cite funding and they cite a challenge with volunteers right now. And I get mm-hmm. that. I hope this isn't the end, but I, I I really want to, I think the one thing that we need to acknowledge here is the city has defined us as a UNESCO city of music. They've defined the downtown as their music district. The city needs to look at this as, I think, one of the pillars that they're going to lose. If you lose that pillar, what does that do to your overall vision of what music is to the city? Mm-hmm. So I think as this comes forward... I think it's a collaboration between that, but I do think that the city has to look at this and say, is this a value proposition that we're just not worth letting go? Yeah. Like, what do you do about it? Kelly, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, and to John's point about like small grassroots organization, and that was really their their origin story yep. and the way that they've continued to operate. But I think the challenge that many nonprofits are facing, particularly grassroots one, is that sustainability issue. So in London, we have lost a lot of our big corporate players. We don't have head offices here. We don't have the access to big corporate sponsorships in the way that we once did. So that's a challenge everybody's facing. Volunteer recruitment massive challenge every nonprofit's universally feeling and and so perhaps part of their path forward could be more around partnership with existing organizations that have a little bit more of that backbone support um, that can maybe help them out along the way but um, it sure would be a shame to see that uh, festival fade away yeah I think from the the volunteer perspective is I don't think you know, I'm going to say my generation really values the, um, on a, on a, um, 
you know, I'm just saying this on a, a blanket level, really understands the value of, of giving back to your community and the importance of volunteering in your community. I know, you know, every small town relies on their small community groups who put on all these community events and do all of that. And, and we're seeing that. Like every small town is seeing, you know, they're losing their fall fairs. They're losing their community events mm-hmm. because they just don't have the volunteers to put it on because people aren't coming out to volunteer. And I know one thing we did in um, out in Town Center in Thorndale was when we started I Love Thorndale, it was really, we were seeing all these young families move in and we were attracting them with our fairs and our events and all of this stuff. And we really put that push on, you know, if you love all of this, you need to join the, these groups. You need to join the Lions Club and the Optimists and the Masonic Hall and, and do all of this because that's who brings all of this to you. Um, and so we have seen an, a bump of more young people joining our service groups. But, but until, you know, communities really see what they'll lose without that volunteer base and and especially for young I say young people I'm not really that young anymore but for younger people you know we're not seeing them out volunteering and, you know, this gets into like a, a, a deeper societal thing yeah but I, <laughs> no, I right? feel as though I feel as though and, you know you and I are roughly the same age uh it's just it's it, I think it's a busier life now than it was 15 years ago. And volunteering is the first thing that gets cut oh, out absolutely. of the busy life, yeah. right? So it's like, you know, if we have more people that are working that extra job and things along those lines because of affordability or, or what, and, and, you know, work hours are longer, things along those lines. It, it just There are just some stresses that weren't necessarily around. And maybe I, it, it comes off as excuse making, but I think that's at least part of the equation here. I, I, I agree, but I can tell you my, my kids now are 30 and 27 years old. Mm-hmm. I can tell you, and I remember my son looking at me when he was young, and I told him I was going to something, and he looked at me and said, what do you get paid for that? And I said, I don't get paid anything for that. And he looked right at me, and he said, well, why would you do it? I said, because it's what you do. This is what you do. You give back to your community. Now, is he learning that at an older age? I think he is learning that at an older age. But at a young age, no comprehension whatsoever. And and I think, I think that's a fair comment that you make about younger people right now. I, I coach baseball, and that's <laughs> that's that, that's where I max out for volunteer. Uh, do you agree with that, that, that? That there are just fewer people that are willing to volunteer for things right now, Kelly. Yeah, I think um, you know, COVID certainly was a factor yes, in that. People once they retreated to their houses, it's a lot harder to get them out, and we're finding that just with our events, like getting you know our numbers back up to pre-COVID levels, is taking some time. And I think too, like in organizations like Home County, we're not just talking about you know about you know the high school student that's there collecting you know tunies in the jar. We're talking about governance volunteers, which is yeah. a whole nother layer, right? You are the you know the treasurer and you're counting the dollars and you have liability um, attached to your name in that Mm -hmm. governance role. And I think that's a part that's really missing and and challenging to fill in in this environment because, you know, you see something go wrong in a nonprofit, um, you know, that boards don't like that and and volunteers. It's a a lot of um, personal risk that people are assuming, but, you know, you do your due diligence and you make sure the organization has appropriate uh, controls and, and insurance to look after volunteers, but it's it's a tough tough sell sometimes. Yeah, no, I believe it. Uh, yeah, the insurance thing. Uh, obviously, the insurance thing has always been around, but I think it's perhaps a bigger piece than it may have been 15 years ago because everyone, you oh, know, yeah. CYA, oh, yeah. right? Oh, so yeah. that's, that's definitely part of it. Uh, last thing on Home County. 
do we think that this signals, and I, I haven't been privy to the books for Sunfest or Ribfest or any of the other Victoria Park festivals, of which there are several, but does this signal perhaps trouble for them? Do we worry about that? I don't think so. Yeah. I, I think I think Sunfest draws a specific group, and I and I think for Ribfest too. I think when you're when you're down there, they're packed at the end of the day. Yep. I think I think with Home County, one of the things that I can say I noticed when I walked through this year, less vendors at Home County, mm-hmm. more music, same 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 number of stages and everything, but I think they're they're challenged as that organization. I think some of those other events. I'm going to say food events going on down there, food events pack that place it yeah. amazes yeah. me like i mean you have poutine fest down there and you're 20 deep to go up yep. and get fries and gravy at the end of the yep. day yeah. food draws people yeah to the downtown <laughs> well i was saying the same thing the other day uh and, and john i know you're the chair of the board of the covent garden market i was talking about taco fest with someone the other day it's huge yeah. huge massive Huge. Oh, tacos? Yeah, I'll go downtown for that. Yeah. Tacos and wrestling. Yeah. yeah. And wrestling. I couldn't believe it. But wrestling was great. <laughs> wrestling was great. Yeah, yeah, I enjoyed that too. Uh, but yeah, th- you're right. Food draws people. Oh, so yeah. if it's Rib Fest as an example, people are going to go because they, they like ribs, which yeah. Yeah, they should. Uh, yeah, it's um, it's 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 a... Uh, I, I'm sad about Home County. I hope that the rest of our downtown festivals okay because they really are important to the, are. the fabric of what we do down here. Absolutely, uh, like it's just one of the things to look forward to in the summer and to have and to know that oh yeah, that's coming up in a couple weeks. I'll head down to the park and do that. And you know, you bring you know I I bring my kids and we take a little walk through the park and it's 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 really good. So I hope that we continue to have that and I hope that in 2025 there is a Home County and maybe this turns into. Uh, you know, we were talking about the volunteer aspect of it. Maybe this turns into people saying, oh, well, I really am going to miss Home County. I better volunteer for 2025 to make sure it's there. And I, I, I hope that's, that's the result, but we'll see. But uh, it is something there that, you know, from a routine perspective, we talked about it with COVID. Once it gets out of the routine, it's sometimes hard to put back in yeah. to the mm-hmm. routine. Yeah. So there, there's that part of it too. And we were talking about that with United Way organizi- organizing as well. We were talking about that with, with Harvest Lunch, with Stair Climb, just once it's once it's For out sure. of the routine, it's not in the routine, but we're, we're, we're seeing numbers, you know, rebound on that yeah. a little numbers bit. Numbers right? are coming back, yeah. but you know, we our model is so much dependent on workplaces. And so when workplaces are hybrid and people are working at home in their pajamas, they're not, you know, necessarily trucking downtown for harvest lunch. So yeah. uh, forces us to be a little more creative, but um, we're glad to see those numbers starting to come back up. I want to talk about uh, another story real quick before I remind you that the Craig Needles podcast in this episode is brought to you by Clearview Autoglass. Uh, let's talk about teacher strikes, which everyone loves to discuss. Uh, Ontario's Catholic teachers have said that they've got a 90-something percent strike mandate, as do the English elementary teachers as well. Uh, secondary teachers on the English side, uh, they've already got a deal with the province. Nonetheless, there is still this labor question hanging over the province. Uh, I always note that ETFO, as an example, has more leverage in this type of thing because if ETFO goes on strike, that dramatically changes my life. (laughs) (laughs) Significant changes to my life. If OSSTF goes on strike, I don't know how much that changes the life of a parent of kids in high school. Definitely not as much as not nearly. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. so I think it's a different conversation. do we think that they're going to find a deal here? Do we think that the like, or or should parents like myself be stressing a little bit about the idea of their uh, they're not being schooled in the not too distant future? You know, I think it, when it comes down to it, there'll be a you know eleventh hour deal come through. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's in a tough spot. You know, the Ford government learned last year with the education support workers that pinning parents against the education support workers 
didn't really work. Um, you can see them trying that tactic again. I know Stephen Lecce posted, yet, I think it was yesterday or the day before, you know, we stand with 100% of the parents who want to keep their kids in schools. And it was like, uh, that might be a little shy of 100%. But yep. um, So I think they're going to try the, ta- the same tactic again. I don't know that it's going to work. I think after COVID, I think people really maybe value teachers a little bit more <laughs> than they did maybe um, pre-COVID. Um, but I think when it comes down to it, the 11th hour, I mean, nobody wants to see a strike at the end of the day. They'll come up with something. I hope so. <laughs> I really, <laughs> truly hope so. Because uh, otherwise, uh, the next uh, Friday round, Apple after the strike, there's going to be a four to five-year-old in here with me. Uh I, I, do you think, Kelly, that they're going to find something? Like, th- this is the way it usually goes. I was almost shocked by OSSTF settling as early as they did on their deal. Well, what's interesting when you look at the EFTO um, website and their social media, they're very um, clear to say this doesn't mean we're walking out. Right. This doesn't mean we're doing work to rule. You know, we're just sort of announcing this mandate. So I think they're choosing their words very carefully. Um, what I do find interesting is, you know, when you look at their priorities, I mean, compensation, of course, is always going to be there, but they're talking about um, health and safety, safe schools, you know, the challenges they're facing with safety in schools um, and and uh, class sizes. So their sort of demands um, are, you know, not just compensation based. And I think they're using this as an opportunity for dialogue. Um, and education of both political leaders and the general public on some of the conditions that they're finding themselves in right now. You guys are so positive. (laughs) (laughs) I love that you guys are so positive. I'm going to be the stick in the mud. I I think, first off, I think you should prepare yourself for the fact that they could very well go out on strike. I've talked with my mom about this. (laughs) I think think there's a reality here. You know, when you look at the NDP government, the Liberal government, the PC government— it's been the same issue over and over again, right? This is this is something that is really hard. They use this negotiating power at the end of the day. They're a, they're a huge union, and I think that they'll, they'll balance. I, I won't dis, I won't disagree with Kel. I'd love to see an eleventh hour deal, and I don't I don't think you're going to get anything before that. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, I I think it's unfortunate, but I but I do think that that's one of the tools in their toolbox. And are they prepared to pull that trigger? I think so. Well, and I think what's important, and and Kelly pointed it out, is that, you know, it's not just compensation, what it's been in previous discussions where compensation has been. And so they have been able to pin that, you know, parents versus teachers because the teachers just want more money. This conversation is more about the health and safety aspect. And I don't think the government can run from that or can pin Mm. that against the teachers, right? Like when it's coming down to the health and safety of your children, you don't have a lot of negotiation there. And I think especially coming out of COVID, especially the fear of, you know, is there going to be another wave? Are they going to shut down schools again? Like, what does that look like for me out in the country with sh- crappy internet? <laughs> <laughs> I almost said another word there. You, you know, you like... Can. <laughs> you, you can't touch us here. You can say um, word you want. Uh, you know, what does that look like? Like, my kids are not getting their education because they can't log on. And so, you know, it's all of those things that... You know, I think it's hard for the government to say the teachers are bad people because they want your kids to be safe. And and that's going to change the tactics that I that I think if the teachers actually go on strike, it's going to hurt the government. So I'm, I'm of two minds on that. One, uh, yes, I think that if this if the teachers can properly frame this and, and, and they're right, they, they, they've said what the outstanding issues are, uh, that this is a matter of the government disagrees with us on classroom safety. They will win that public relations fight. 
if the government can say these teachers want more money, that's going to be a different conversation. I'll also note that when the government tried to pull this on QP about a year ago, it was right? a year ago, yeah. yeah. When they tried to pull this on QP, uh, I think they kind of misread the well, more than kind of, they did misread the green because. The general public, I think, does acknowledge that, hey, teachers are, are, are well compensated. These, the QP lawyers, the QP lawyers, the QP employees that the government was fighting with a year ago, not on the high end of the income scale. Mm -hmm. And I think from a PR perspective, that wound up being relevant. Yeah. So yeah. I don't know if the fight would go exactly the same this time. But if ETFO, if OECTA can frame this as we're talking about the safety of your kids in their classroom and we're talking about the quality of education that your kids are getting. That's what we're negotiating on here. They're probably going to win that PR fight mm -hmm. if that's what it comes to. Uh, but it's on them to, to frame it properly because yeah. the, uh, the government's going to want to say this is about this is about money. This is about them being greedy. Uh, and uh, obviously the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario would tell you, no, this is not about necessarily the money going into our pockets, but we are asking the government to spend a little bit more, more on the quality of education in these classrooms. So, Which be, they're not wrong. <laughs> no, no, and they're not wrong. And this government, and, and, and to be clear, this is not just a Ford government issue. We've had several successive governments here who have let a few things fall behind the education system, including, and, and I think some would tell you especially, the infrastructure gap in schools right now is yeah. a real problem. Yeah. There are some schools yeah. in this province that are that are way behind, and in some cases even falling apart. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that needs to be done. Now, that's not going to be dealt with at the bargaining table with the teaching unions, of course. But that's just something else that the government has let fall by the wayside here in service of other things they've been working on. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about one more thing before we wrap up here. Uh, speaking of the Ford government, uh, someone's threatened to sue Doug Ford, and it's an opposition MPP. Sarah Jama has said that uh, unless Doug Ford retracts what she said, what uh, the premier said uh, in regards to Sarah Jama, in uh, the premier's words, uh, being uh, anti-Semitic and things along those lines, uh, she may progress with uh, a legal action against the premier. Uh, this is... A very unique situation, obviously. You typically do not have members of provincial parliament threatening to sue one another, but that is where we are at here. Should Sarah Jamma have gone ahead and do, done this, and what should the premier do in this situation, do you think? Um, well, first, I did a thread on Twitter talking about, you know, the level of disrespect and dishonor and, you know, all of those things that's happening in not, not just in our legislature in Ontario, but in the House of Commons federally as well. And I think this just plays down to it is just a complete lack of respect for anybody who sits in the, in those chamber okay. in those chambers. And, you know, I think it's really unfortunate. Um, but I think, uh, MPP Jam is right. Like what he said about her, whether or not that is his opinion of her or not, like that's not something you do to a colleague. Absolutely. Mm. It's not even something you do to a human, but, but your colleague who sits in opposition, who you should be working together and collaborating with for the betterment of Ontario, like this is just, it's playground politics. And, you know, I think I give credit 
I, you know, don't give enough credit to five-year-olds because I think they're more mature than, than some of the behaviors that are happening. I know a lot of five-year-olds. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that are happening in, in, uh, in Ontario right now in, in politics. But I think she has every right to do it. And, and, you know, and I think at the end of the day, you know, Doug Ford does, if, does owe her an apology. And if he wants to make this disappear, he's going to have to apologize for it and, and publicly apologize for it and, and eat his words. Whether or not he wants to do that, I think it's the smartest move for him from a PR standpoint. I think that the reason why Ford went full, you know, rage on that particular statement was it came out the very same day that we found out the RCMP was investigating the government. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That that that's 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 why he just saw an opportunity. Let let's change the channel. Let's talk about something else, and it is working. But he may have bitten off more than he can chew here, John. What do you think? Yeah, I I think Kelly's absolutely right. One one of the challenges we have here is the respecting, and and. Kelly, I know I know you say it at the provincial and the federal level. It's it's there in the municipal level oh, absolutely. too, right? <laughs> there is there is no holding back on social media anymore. And what it comes down to is opinion is stronger than fact, right? My opinion matters. Not really. Facts matter at the end of the day. But people are willing to share their opinion on social media and very rarely in the public eye do they, are they held accountable for that. And and do I see I I see this as an issue, but I think this issue is is so much in context with things that are said right now, and somehow we have to get some form of decorum back where, as you say, these people that are in these roles, there has to be a certain amount of respect. If you don't show that respect at the end of the day, you know what? This is what we get, and and I just, I just think it's sad right now. Well, I think it's come down, sorry, Kelly, <laughs> it's come down to, you know, I, I, we're in gotcha politics it, like again facts don't matter policies don't matter it's it's that gotcha like those quick social media quips you know that make people talk in the headlines where people don't have to read you know a whole story they just want to read the headline and and that's what matters and and we've gotten exactly what we've asked for yeah yeah, and, and I think what that does is it's going to exclude people from running in the future, right? Why would I bother, you know, being hung out to dry like this, being a target, mm-hmm. uh, having my family targeted, have, you know, it, it goes on and on and on. And, and I don't need to tell both of you as former politicians <laughs> what that's like. And, and, you know, I've been asked, are you ever going to run for anything? I'm like, oh, I can't even imagine, right? And, and that's, that's my fear is like people will stop. Uh, running, and we're just going to see this um, decline continue. Yeah, I, uh, I I share that very same concern. Uh, I will say this, uh, and this is the take that I put on Twitter, and I'll repeat it here on the podcast. Uh, whether you agree with or disagree with what Sarah Jama put in her statement about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, uh, and there would be some people that would vehemently agree with and vehemently disagree with it, no matter which side of that you're on, and this is just me being cynical, but it's true, to do that on the day that it came out that the RCMP was investigating Doug Ford's government, that was a political liability. And I know that not everyone's going to want to hear that. They're going to be mad at me for, well, she was standing up for this or she was, sorry, but it was. However, despite that, was it anti-Semitic? Was it anti-Jewish? Was it all the different things that Doug Ford put in his statement about Sarah Jamma's conduct? No, it was not those things. It wasn't. So I, I think that 
Two things can be true at once. One, was that necessarily a great idea for her to put out that statement with that timing, with that terminology, with some spelling mistakes and a variety of other things? No, that was like, so the only reason I bring up the spelling mistakes is it clearly wasn't vetted. This is something that was was clearly a, a lone wolf situation. No, not a great idea. However, despite that, that doesn't give the other political party in the province license to craft whatever they want from that statement and turn it into whatever it is they wanted it to be, which clearly was a channel changing distraction on the RCMP investigation. And not even just like, you know, another member of parliament, the premier. Yeah. Like the premier. There were other (laughs) conservative or progressive conservative members that did similar things, but the premier went the hardest. Yeah, absolutely. Because he's the guy getting investigated by the RCMP, really. Not not just him, but like he's going to be amongst the people who are investigated here. So uh, there you go. Uh, I, I, that's, that's, that's at the very least my take on that. I, I think that unless anyone else has anything they want to add about the JAMA Ford situation or anything else along those lines, I think that we can uh, wrap up our little chat here. This is great. I feel, I, you know, I was going to say I was a rose between two thorns, but you know what? I don't think that's right. I think there's a, I think I'm looking for the opposite statement of that. <laughs> You're the thorn between two there roses. You there you go. I, like, I think that's better. Uh, this is a great roundtable. Thank you very much to uh, Kelly and Kelly and John for doing it with me. And thanks very much to all of you for downloading and listening to this episode of the Craig Ingalls podcast, which of course you can find at classicrock981.com, londonnewstoday.ca, and wherever you get your podcast, the Craig Needles podcast is brought to you by Clearview Autoglass. With a bit of bad luck, your windshield took one for the team and you've got to get it replaced. The good luck is you've got Clearview Autoglass. Certified in OptiAIM Lane Departure Camera Calibration Service, Clearview Autoglass will replace your windshield quickly and safely to ensure the integrity of your vehicle. And they will submit your claim directly to your insurance company for you. Plus, they'll give you a $25 gift card. Don't just drive, enjoy the view with Clearview Autoglass. 540 Clark Road and clearviewautoglasslondon.ca. The Craig Needles Podcast is a presentation of the Blackburn Media Podcast Network.